Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Good afternoon. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to episode 63 of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts. And for those of you who are tuning in for the first time, because we're starting a new series, The Hope of Resurrection. This is a podcast we started in March of 2020 in order to keep us sane and theologically grounded in the midst of COVID-19. And whenever that started, I thought we'd be doing about 10 episodes, but here we are on episode number 63, starting the new series. And uh, today we have a great, exciting guest, the Reverend Dr. Mark Jefferson. And uh, Dr. Jefferson is on faculty at Virginia Theological Seminary, where I graduated from. He is an internationally respected preacher, but also a teacher of preachers, which is no easy task. He was inducted into the Martin Luther King Jr. Board of Preachers at Morehouse College, and he has preached at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., among other places. Uh, He's a native of Hampton, Virginia, and he's also the quarterback for Virginia's flag football team, the Fighting Friars. Um, Whenever I was at Virginia in 2008, my final year, I was the coach of the Fighting Friars, and we were not very successful that year. I led us to an 0-4 season, so I hope that Dr. Jefferson has led Virginia to greater glory with respect um, to flag football since I've left. But Mark, we're so excited for you to be here. I'm excited to introduce you to St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas, and our other listeners from wherever they may be. And I want to say welcome. We're so very glad to have you. Well, thank you for having me. And all we've done since you left is try to build on it. The foundation that you left. So I just thank you for putting in some of that grunt work in the early years so that we could fly as high as we're flying now. Um, so, so, so thank you for that. Um, and, uh, and thank you all for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be considered um, for such an opportunity to be able to share with you all. I don't take it lightly and I'm so grateful for Father John for the opportunity to share. And so thank you very much. All right, Mark, thank you. And you can dive right in to the reflection. So one of the interesting experiences of my life has been what I've engaged in over the last couple of years. The dean of the seminary came up to me maybe the fall of 2018, and he asked me, would I be willing to preach 200 sermons leading up to our bicentennial in 2023? So in short, Virginia Theological Seminary turns 200 years old in 2023. And so if you're familiar with American history, um, 200 years is a fairly significant piece of time. And so our seminary, being on the same plot of land since 1823 with its complicated history, um, is seeking to be able to bear more faithful witness in this next century or so ahead. And so before I did the short math and added up how much time that would be, I say yes. And I say yes, in part, because I believe that the future of the church is in the people. It's in the pews. 
And um, one of the things I can talk about later is my passion for unearthing a preaching church, right? A church that preaches. And so what I found on this bicentennial journey, which has sent me from coast to coast and hopefully around the world, is that as I've been making my way through these sermons, I started in October 15th. Um, 2018, and I'll conclude in 2023. And over these years, over these, you know, two, two and a half years thus far, I've had a chance to see the church in many different forms and many different opportunities of worship and many different perspectives of political and social thought. And these churches have invited me into their virtual and physical space. Um, I've had a chance to fly and drive into these places and to see how people are living out their faith on the ground. And so you would imagine that this COVID and all the things that come along with it, the social and political ramifications that are at work, you would imagine that those things would um, crush and break people's spirits in ways that um, would seem almost right under the circumstances. But what I found is that in the congregations that I've been engaged with, that there's a tremendous sense of hope. There's a tremendous sense of optimism And part of that optimism and part of that hope is in the fact that they understand the power of fellowship and they have an appreciation for fellowship because they understand that at the core of any type of future ongoing of the church, it's in the gathering of people, whether it's in the virtual space, the physical space, but the people coming together. And so one of the, one of the many lessons that I've learned traveling to these churches and preaching in their pulpits and meeting their people and drinking coffee and coffee hour and preaching virtually and, you know, recording a sermon two weeks ahead before it even um, releases to the people is that people are still gathered. People are still seeking to be the church and the ways in which we develop ourselves as clergy, the way that we develop ourselves as leaders, the way that we think about ourselves as members of this church are, are, are going to impact the ways in which you live that out. And so I'm excited and optimistic about the ways in which our seminary is seeking to support churches and to support the development of preaching and the support, um, the cultivation of preaching excellence around the world. Um, I'm excited about the ways in which we're actively seeking to create a church that preaches, you know, development of lay people that preach and deacons that preach and enhancing those who preach professionally. We want to make sure that this church is able to bear effective witness. Um, Tying that to um, uh, a conversation that we're going to have later um, is the notion of understanding that resurrection leads to responsibility. And so by believing in the resurrection, having felt the spiritual resurrection of our lives, that resurrection brings responsibility. And by the disciples being in proximity to Jesus after the resurrection, they had to then live differently. We also, by being witnesses of the resurrection and also being evidence of resurrection, must take that um, that story, that narrative, that encounter, and we must begin to share that with the world. So that's where my hope is as a homiletician. That's where my hope is as a preacher. That's where my hope is as a Christian is that we'll begin to bear the witness that's necessary to begin to change the world. So that's all I have, John. I look forward to our conversation.
Well, that's that's perfect. That thanks for for teeing that up, and and I'm excited about this conversation, Mark. And and I have a lot of questions. First, though, did I hear that correctly? You're going to preach 200 sermons at Virginia Seminary over a period of five years. No, it was right? 200 sermons around the world. Around the so, around the world. Yeah, right. These are 200. So that, these are 200 different sermons, Mark. That's the way it's shaping <laughs> up. So right now, we're we're around number 95 or so, and so. I've been preaching since October 15th of 2018, and I've been going here and there, West Coast to the East Coast, to Nebraska, to Mississippi, to Texas, to Tennessee, oh all goodness. places in between. Yeah, still teaching and still writing and still, you know, trying to have some sort of social life, but actively uh, not just preaching, but teaching preachers outside of the seminary space. So it's been, it's been, a, uh, it's been busy times, but good times. I love that. And I love um, um, talking about raising up a preaching church. And, you know, what I didn't hear you say is, you know, that your passion is equipping ordained people with father in front of their names who wear collars to preach better in the pulpit that you want a preaching church. And I want you to say more about that because you've got the church listening here. You have the saints at St. Michael's and beyond. And um, not all of them will be invited. Uh, most of them will not be invited to preach, you know, from the pulpit at St. Michael's on a Sunday morning. And yet my intuition is that you believe that they are still invited to be part of the preaching church. And so am I hearing that right? And if so, what does it look like for the laity, the saints listening to live their lives um, as preachers? Am I, am I kind of intuiting that right? Oh, oh, you're hearing what I'm hoping to convey, and hopefully I can clarify um, any of the gray that might exist. So I want to approach this in a couple of ways. Number one, prior to becoming a seminary professor, I was in a PhD program at Emory University. And so I was studying homiletics there. But one of the reasons why I went to Atlanta for my master's at Emory and then my PhD is I wanted the best and most robust church experience I could wed with higher level academics. So I wanted to be able to study religion at a high level, but I also wanted to be able to engage in the institutions of religion at a high level. So I had the benefit of being able to work at one of the fastest growing churches in America while I was in seminary. Mm. So and this is 2006. And so Outreach Magazine every year will put out fastest growing churches in America. And so I was the director of Christian education um, of the Greater Travelers Rest Baptist Church, which is a 10, 12, 13,000 member church in the, on the fringes of Atlanta. And so one of the issues that kept coming up is that as the church grew, the reputation of the pastor grew, Pastor E. Dewey Smith. But a lot, of, a lot of pastors would reach out to him because of the stress that they felt as being the sole preacher or having to be the person who manages all the things. They were feeling the institutional weight of what it felt like to be a preacher to the point where there, there has been, and if, we, and if we're not careful, we miss this, but there has been a rash of clergy suicides oh, that man. have happened. Yeah. And aside from the suicides, there has been a rise in the awareness in which 
clergy have had the burden, have had to carry the burden of tremendous mental and emotional yep. anxiety and stress. And yep. so part of that is psychosocial, but part of that as an institution is that the ways in which you've organized church for the one person, the professional to do all the things is not necessarily the church model that we find in Acts, yeah. right? And so what I'm asking us to do is I'm asking us to be the church that Jesus asked us to be yeah. and that the, the way in which that acts helped to shape our understanding of church, which is we all have our parts to play, but we all have a witness that we have to share because we all should have an encounter with Jesus that requires our faithful um, sharing of that with others. And so by establishing that the priesthood of believers is still active and that each person has a message to share with the group of people who God has gifted them to be able to share it with, that takes the pressure off the preacher in the pulpit being yeah. the only place and person that God's word can go forth. Now the pulpit is under one's feet and not just where one stands in a particular church building. Oh, I love that. The pulpit is under one's feet and not in one place in the church building. You know, that in our catechism in the Book of Common Prayer, it says that the primary ministers of the church, the laity, and that their vocation is to bear witness to Christ wherever they may be, wherever they may be. So if you're a teacher, if you're a lawyer, if you work for the city, if you're I mean, what if you're retired, if you're a mom? Like wherever you may be, where your feet are planted is where you are to bear witness to Christ. And I appreciate you naming um, kind of the hazard of the job of being clergy, because a lot of people don't know that it's kind of an at-risk profession in the sense that, um, you know, uh, and you reference the suicides, but just kind of the emotional toll of the work over time. And part of that work, a large part of that work is saying, you know, I'm not the witness. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I might be the rector, but my job is to, as you said, uh, empower people to be the church. You, you referenced Acts and right before Jesus ascended to the Father, he said, you will be my witnesses. And what I'm hearing you say is that it's time to reclaim that we are all Jesus's witnesses. And I also like this, I also tell my students when I teach preaching, I said, the Episcopal Church in many ways has allowed itself to exist in a, in a spoiled mentality in the sense that it has not had to compete in the religious marketplace. Yeah. Therefore, preaching hasn't been one of those things that has been sharpened to the degree that it shouldn't have. Because the Episcopal Church in many ways thrived off of its exclusivity yeah so in many ways that ran counter to being competitive like if that was a business that could run counter to being competitive right but now with the the numbers working in the opposite direction now you one is having to learn how to be competitive technologically homiletically you know worship wise all these things are beginning to happen, but these things can't just be the domain of the rector, pastor, preacher, because many churches are 50 people and less and aren't necessarily led by somebody who can do this job full time because they can't they can't pay full time. So 
raising up a preaching church is a necessity for the vi- for the viability of the church, and it also creates quality control with the with the preachers that churches get because if people can preach, then there's actually a responsibility for the rector and the preacher to make sure that she or he is as prepared as she or he needs to be as well. So it creates a sense of quality control when people begin to take ownership of the institution as a church and begin to live into their baptismal vows, mm. into their um, into their relationship with Christ. That's really, really well said. So one more question I have about this before I want to sure. uh, shift gears on some of your Let's reflections. One of the things that um, <laughs> gets quoted more often than anything in the Episcopal Church by the laity, or, or just by people, not the laity, by, by people, by priests, lay mm-hmm. people, everyone loves that old quote from St. Francis, preach the gospel always, but if necessary, use words. You think that's a little bit of a cop out or... <laughs> Do you think we need to be better using words or do you like that St. Francis quote? <laughs> well, how about how about this? I, I, I like to tell people life is about relationships. Mm. And so there's a book by Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages. And so some people prefer gifts. Some people prefer words of affirmation. Some people prefer service. Some people have different needs to be able to communicate affection. Because one's desired mode of sharing affection is not the other person's desired mode of receiving it. Mm. But I think a lot of times it becomes a way for a person who's already reticent Mm. to then dig further into that reticence. Because yes, you can do good things, but ultimately, how do people know of where to ascribe that? How do people know what motivated you to do that and be that for them? So sometimes we miss the opportunity to tag God on the things that God is due because we rather abdicate all responsibility and presence to what's going on. And I think that's unfortunate. So I think the quote is apt, but I think unfortunately we've, I've heard, people use that as a way to step back and not step up yeah that's 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 well said that's been my experience as well um i want to shift gears a little bit you you talk about traveling around and um and the hope and optimism you've experienced with fellowship and but but you also referenced uh the social and political ramifications of the pandemic and how you know that could crush people's spirits and and i think you know, with respect to COVID, uh, it's really um, spotlighted s- certain things. I mean, we can look at uh, the vaccine and, and maybe who's getting the vaccine first, or we can look at uh, the past year and some of the um, just the, the racial um, um, the racial divisions and, and things like that. And, and it can, I mean, as a pastor and talking to people, I know that people are really disheartened. And I'm wondering if um, you believe that hope and a, um, not despair, that's not the right word, but hope and really kind of a, a pierced soul and looking at this stuff, if that, uh, if it's appropriate for those things to coexist. Um, it's funny that you said that because that essentially kind of like works into the overall motif of what I'm hoping to share um, with my time with you all, which is that the witness 
that the disciples were asked to bear witness to was a mm. wounded witness. Oh man, yeah. It, it wasn't a perfect witness. It wasn't an unblemished witness. It wasn't a Christ that did not go through any earthly travail, but it was bearing witness of a public execution, a, a, a manifestation of capital punishment. And you're to bear witness to this all over the world. Um, so unfortunately, that witness gets sanitized and it becomes tamped down so that people don't feel the need to share something like that because it's become unsavory to share it in the way that it was. You have to remember, at the time that Jesus reappears to them, the only way that Jesus could authenticate himself to them is through the wounds mm. that he had. It wasn't that he appeared to them in a room because they thought he might have been a ghost. But the way for them to know that Jesus is who he is is through his wounds because the wounds are what tell the story. It, so I have I have a a a like a wound on my thumb. Right. I, I worked, I was playing, I played football all the way through college. And so I used to work during the summers. And so I worked at UPS. And so I was, I think I was working my third job that day or something like that. Uh, and I worked out that morning. So I was exhausted. So I'm reaching for a box and I put my hand on the conveyor belt and I'm reaching for the box and my hand is moving and it gets caught in the lip where the conveyor belt turns over. So my hand is caught in the thing, right? So I pull my hand out. And so my so my hand, though there's nothing that's structurally wrong with it, it you can tell that something is happening, right? Mm -hmm. I say that to say that wounds tell stories. Mm. Right? So in the woundedness is the story of one's experience that brought this about. So for us as a church, it's not just about telling a story about Jesus, but it's about telling a wounded story. Hmm. It's a story that's not necessarily perfect, but it's a story that's faithful to the flesh that we live in. And it's that faithfulness to that story of our experience with God in the flesh that we live in, that we live in, that empowers us to speak when we wouldn't necessarily speak and to share when we wouldn't necessarily share. Okay, so I want to I want to stay with this, and I'm going to kind of work this out verbally because this is really really important. So, I think let me stay with me so I can I, I think that I can um, I'm tracking with you, and I want to see if I am. So, I think that there's two errors that as preachers, as we think about our witness, that we want to avoid. On the one hand, you know, way over here, we're not just like optimism, hope, pie in the sky. It's all cupcakes and rainbows. There is no pain. God's going to make it right. Don't look at your pain because we're all going to fly away to heaven. It's going to be fine. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to cover up the tragedy, injustice, pain, sin of the world or the imperfection of our lives and our complicity in all that. On the other hand, we're not going to wallow in bitterness, despair, anger, just sit around, um, in woundedness without hope. But what I think I'm hearing you say is that 
the witness of resurrection that the risen Christ breaks in. He shows Thomas his wounds and that that's almost an invitation of what it means for us to bear witness to the world that we look at our wounds, our personal wounds. We look at our wounds as a society. We look at injustice. We look at pain. We look at suffering. We enter there fully in solidarity with each other and kind of from that place, because we believe in Jesus's wounds and in the power of them to save and heal and restore that somehow that's the place that authentic witness springs forth from. And that's the place where true hope is born. Is that, I mean, is that right? Hope comes from the reality of the experience that you're in, right? So I can't have appropriate hope without understanding the reality of the situation that I'm in. Mm. So if I'm living in a deluded, fanciful state, if I'm living in the perpetual phantasm, then I don't know what real hope is because I don't know where I really am. So a lot of us, we, I hear clergy preaching about a hope that's not grounded in a reality that we can put our hands in. It's not material. Their reality is a world that's not yet. So they preach to a world that's not yet to people who live in the world that's right now. Mm. So one of the things I wonder about, because, you know, as a preacher, I know that I'm aware of the temptation. Like I, 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 you know, I write sermons and, and I'm a human being. And, you know, sometimes I just want people to, I just, (laughs) I just want people, sometimes I just want people to feel good. And Mm -hmm. I have that choice as a preacher sometimes of, do I want to go this direction or not? You know, and, and I'm aware of that. And I'm aware of, you know, what it's like to go that direction and to feel really proud of, or, you know, to feel like that's a courageous choice. I'm also aware of what it's like to kind of mess it up and to not preach the sermon that God called me to preach. But in listening to you, the, the, the movie that comes to mind is The Matrix. And, you know, there's that scene, and I, I haven't seen the movie in a long time, where, uh, you know, people just say, I, I want to go back into delusion. I want to, I want to, you know, whatever, undo what I see and go eat the steak. I want to be back in fantasy world. And it, it makes me wonder if one of the greatest enemies of true hope is a desire to be perpetually comfortable, you know, because fantasy land is comfort. So watch this, right? Our comfort can be habituated so that even something that you're not comfortable with, you can learn to be comfortable with it because comfort is something that you can then place on someone. So like, so if you put a rat in this, in the Skinner box, right? The rat will do all types of unnatural things because that's how it's being socialized to be able to navigate this, this box. Mm. So it will then find comfort doing things that it would not necessarily do in the natural. So we are adaptable beings and creatures, but our adaptability doesn't necessarily mean that 
we shouldn't put boundaries on it and we shouldn't constrain that adaptability. So, so here's what it means for this wounded gospel you speak of. Where are you from, John? Where are you I'm from? from Be- I'm from Beaumont, Texas. It's kind of Southeast Texas, right by oh, the border of Louisiana. Oh, yeah. Louisiana. Oh, you know I, it? I've been to Beaumont. Yeah. Yeah? What? Yeah, yeah I, was, okay. I, was, I was down there. I did uh, the Mary Cecil lecture for Tony Clark down there. Oh, okay. Well, that's a parish I grew up in, St. Mark's in Beaumont. And so you met a lot of people who raised me and raised me up if you were down at St. Mark's in Beaumont, Texas. I love that. Oh, yeah. Some great barbecue down there. Yeah, but anyway, I, as an aside. I am from Hampton, Virginia. Okay. And so I am not an Episcopalian. I'm an ordained Baptist by way of the Pentecostal church and a whole bunch of other places that we can get into later. But this bicentennial experience has been key for me to understand the Episcopal mind and also the American consciousness as a whole, because I'm not just preaching at Episcopal schools and Episcopal churches and Episcopal places, but the core of that preaching is in Episcopal spaces. So on my last trip, I went from Hampton, Virginia, which is where the oldest Anglican parish is, Episcopal Anglican parish is, to Williamsburg, to Richmond, to DC, to Philadelphia, and to Boston. I literally drove up the spine of America. I drove up the spine of America and I stopped at the different churches along the way and tried to understand what was going on and how and why. And by being able to understand the ways in which something developed historically, that helped me to understand the wounded witness of the Episcopal church because Mm -hmm. the Episcopal church was in on everything that happened in America. Mm Not and not just in on it past tense, right? Because as I've traveled to these cities and towns and places, these Episcopal churches are right next to City Hall. They're right next to the state legislature. They're right next to important social buildings and things in political buildings and cities and towns. So these churches have tremendous power and proximity. But the question becomes, well, what is the witness that comes from that place? Is it a witness, but it's not wounded because it's not dealing with the reality of what was and what is? Mm. Is it, you know, so by telling this wounded witness is what authenticates us to the world. Being able to grapple with the Episcopal Church's historic legacy with slavery and oppression, Mm. gender discrimination and the like. But now it's need for the people that it kicked out. Yeah. So. It, but it's telling that entire story that gives it the hope of resurrection that it's looking for. Anything less than that is not going to work. And when yeah. individual parishes can tell that story and the larger church can tell that story, then it helps the nation to begin to tell a story that begins to lend itself more to resurrection and less to, to fantasy. And so this really brings us to the, one of the last things you said in your reflection, and, and it kind of leads, it tees it up. You said that resurrection, uh, it's, it's not escapism, it's it, resurrection leads to responsibility. And so, we, I mean, you've articulated it, but if you want to really condense it as you think about those who are listening and thinking about the hope of resurrection, speaking to not just individual Christians, but to the church as a whole, um, as we put our hope in resurrection, what then becomes our responsibility? 
you'll hear a little bit more about this in my longer reflection, but the wound itself is a site of resurrection. The actual wound itself. So it's like a mini resurrection, if you will. So that something being able to heal and to reconstitute itself um, is a reflection of what it means to still for, for life to be present. So what does that mean for us as a church and as a society? We are wounded by the actions that we demonstrate with one another, right? The way, the context in which we live, the ways that we have to navigate that and the ways that we have to then live in alienation and in fellowship with our neighbor. But resurrection calls us to a different level of fellowship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it's asking us to see the world as it is but then to make a claim on reality with another reality, not ignoring reality altogether, but it makes God's claim on top of our claim. And that's what resurrection is. Resurrection is God having the last word. God, so, I love it, that. so, so, so I, that is our responsibility. I believe well, part of it as we think about what it means to be a preaching church is to to make God's claim on our reality known. Mark, I wonder if, if I mean, in everything you said, it's just, it's spot on and I, I love every word of it. Part of me wonders um, if it's fair to say that part of the responsibility is to have a radical commitment to the truth, but that the truth is really twofold as I heard you articulate it. You talk about seeing the world as it is. And so part of telling the truth is telling the truth about the reality of our experience, the reality of our wounds, the reality of our history. I mean, just to knock on, you know, to tell the truth, but then also to tell the truth about God's world, which has a claim on this one, and that will ultimately have the last word, and that there's almost a, a tension of, uh, maybe not attention, but there's this healthy telling the truth of this is our experience at the moment, and this is what is, and yet this is the truth of God's world, and this ultimately will have the last word. And so there's like a twofold telling of the truth. Does that sound right? Jesus is constantly calling all of us into account. Yeah. And as much as the disciples walked with him jesus had no problem letting them know that their proximity to him did not mean they understood him Mm. and the particular gospel writers would be keen enough to make that understanding obvious for us if we didn't quite understand that these people are eating with him and sleeping around him and telling jokes and all this kind of stuff, yet they still don't get it. Yeah. He dies and they still don't get it. He has to come back to remind them of what he told them before he died <laughs> because they still yeah. didn't get it. So I'm grateful that God continues to function through resurrection as a way of showing us that though we were dead in sin, mm. that's not where we have to stay. 
And so that's that's the hope for the church. And that should give people something to preach about at the beauty salon, on Facebook, you know, talking to your grandkids, you know, whatever. It should give you something to be able to emote and embody in a way that makes you step outside of who you think you are. Amen. I'm not going to add a single word to that. That is is really, really perfect, Mark. And uh, and uh, I just want to thank you again for being with us. And before before we and, and we're also really excited about the uh, the larger reflection to be shared with us. But before we let you go, uh, there's five questions. These are just meant to be kind of rapid fire questions, you know, just a sentence, uh, that I like to ask people at the end and, you know, just have really little to do with your reflection, just questions I like to ask, okay? So this is the John Newton Rapid Five. You ready? I like it. All right, Mark. Number one, what are you grateful for at the moment? I'm grateful to be able to serve God at a seminary like this one because we're willing to tell our complicated story. And that, for me, invites me to be fully present in what we're trying to do. Love it. Number two, uh, as you think back on the past 14 months, uh, the, the COVID pandemic, um, which has really taken us all kind of by, by surprise, I think, what are you less sure of than you were before the pandemic began? What are you less sure of now? I am less sure. How about this? After all of this, I realized that I need a whole lot less than what mm -hmm. I thought I needed. And so I was sure at times I needed more. Yeah. And I realized yeah. that um, I, this it's amazing what essential means. And I have a tremendous and healthy respect for the word essential and the items and the people who are able to make essential possible. Mm, love it. Uh, number three, um, what are you more sure of than before, if anything? I am more sure that we as people are more alike than we're separate. Mm. And we need each other more now than ever because it is easier now for less people to control more people than ever before. So we need more people to be in relationship with more people so that the views, perspectives, and the needs for resources of the more people are reflected and not just a few. Perfect. Number four, what TV show, book, song, or movie, so you can pick one, has brought you a greater sense of peace and perspective in the last year? Just something that's been meaningful to you or that you've enjoyed? <laughs> I love Johnny Cash. So I have spent the better part of two years in cars, planes, trains, and all that kind of stuff. So one of my favorite songs is I've Been Everywhere because just like <laughs> just like that song i've been to you know a few of the places that he's he mentioned and i can i can relate to the feeling i can relate to the to the need to be on the road i i can really understand love that okay this is the last question all right Mark, when, whenever um 
whenever your time comes and you stand before the living God and you mm-hmm. see God face to face, what do you hope to hear God say to you? That was pretty good, man. That was pretty good. Um, honestly, I hope I just hope I hope God is pleased. I'm you know, I don't, you know, I tell I tell my students, you know, I don't I don't have any inside clue on if there's a heaven or not. I don't know. I ain't been, can't say. But what I do believe is that there is some sort of assessment, there's some sort of judgment. You can't just live and there's not be some sort of uh, some sort of uh aggregation of one's actions. You know, I just don't, I just don't nothing, nothing about the scripture tells me that that's not there. So for me. I live my life thinking, God, you gave me all these opportunities to touch as many people as I could touch. I want to make sure I do everything I can. So if God is like, did everything I need you to do. That's pretty good. Amen. Amen. Mark, you've really um, blessed us. Thanks for sharing your voice and your time with the people of St. Michael's Episcopal Church. And uh, just this has been really fun for me and um, can't thank you enough for sharing yourself, your wisdom and your time with us. Well, thank you for having me. Your seminary is proud of you and the work that you're doing down there. And I just want you to know that you're doing a tremendous work. And however we can support you, we'll be glad to. And uh, hopefully as um, things uh, dissipate and the world finds a new normal, we'll be able to see each other in person. Because Austin is the one city in Texas I have not gotten to yet that I'm itching to. I got some good friends out there. So I look forward to eating some barbecue and catching up you have a home you have a you have a contact in austin so whenever you're coming i expect you to reach out we'll, we'll welcome you to our church and i'll show it's you whatever happening. you need yeah it's, it's happening, happening. So. it's going down in a major way thank you austin thank you all so very much for having me